Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Click donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. Today's episode contains extremely graphic material of a sexual nature that is an essential part of the conversation we have been having this season about conspiracy and occultism, but should be approached with caution. Today's content should disturb all of our listeners. This material is not appropriate for younger listeners and should be approached advisedly by listeners with a history of abuse. Because of the graphic nature of today's episode, and the fact that most of what we're going to discuss involves people who are still alive, I'm going to be doing something a little unusual and giving my alchemical actors a break. Although I've spent a considerable amount of time with primary sources, I'm not going to have anyone reenact them today. I have asked a couple of folks to join me in the discussion, but we're also going to try and be as respectful as possible since the claims made today are both very extreme and uh, impossible to disprove. I think it's conceivable, if not likely, that the purported victims of mind control we're going to hear about today are victims of some sort of abuse. Whether or not it's the exact scenarios of abuse they describe is something we'll need to interrogate and examine. Today's conversation bridges the school of conspiracy thought growing out of the CIA's secret MK programs and good old-fashioned anti-occultism. At this point, we're all very familiar with the anti-occult conspiracy, so let's just take a brief step into the CIA side of this. According to scholar Aaron John Gullius, MKUltra was a CIA program to discover chemical, biological, and radiological materials to influence human behavior, and MKDelta was a CIA program to implement those findings into practice. MKUltra comprised nearly 150 different programs. Gullius points out that the CIA destroyed all documents related to MKUltra in 1973. They said that they did this to protect universities and other agencies outside the government who had assisted in the projects. Although they did not claim to have destroyed any documents after 1973, this was proof that they could do it and cover it up, leaving journalists and scholars to wonder as they perused files from 1976 or 1979 whether the filing cabinet had already been partially purged. This ill-advised approach to the MKUltra files is the main source of the conspiracies that have followed, centered on theories of psychological operations on a mass scale and the creation of hypnotically programmed sex slaves. Somewhere in the memory hole of those missing documents are the files detailing the hypnotic manipulation used to create sex slaves under the project name Monarch, or at least that's what the conspiracy theorists tell us. Amid talk of politicians' purported depravities, billionaire-funded orgies, and LSD, what's often lost is the role Satan is supposed to have played in all of this, a significant role in point of fact, and the root of occultism's involvement in the government's so-called mind-control operations. Whew. Whoa, here we go. So this is it. This is the end of the conspiracy series. Uh, my name is Dr. Rob C. Thompson. I am the supreme hierophant of our secret order of alchemical actors. Uh, and uh, yeah, this is, this is uh, the conclusion of our research. Very challenging story today. Uh, and I am joined uh, by our grandmaster. Olivia's back in the saddle. Hello. It's been so long. 
That's Olivia Literal right there. Uh, it's been a month. That's a long time. So you've uh, what have you been up to? Just so folks are, uh, know, what 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 research have you been uh, at? Oh, Elizabeth Bathory. Is that what you want me to yes. tease? Yes. Yeah. That's what I want you to tease. Should I include Aubrey in the tease? Ah, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Well, Olivia and Aubrey tease uh, Elizabeth <laughs> Bathory and Beatrice Sensi, I believe, is how you pronounce her last name. Not quite sure on that yet, but I'm pretty sure. Sounds about right. Um, uh, so you guys are working on a Patreon series. Yeah. Sorry, I forgot to mention that part. I'm not. I got to get back <laughs> in the saddle. I'm like, I'm like one foot in the, on the saddle. Yeah. Well, we'll get to Patreon. Yeah. One foot on the saddle. That sounds dangerous. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend riding a horse that way. Although I have rode bareback before on a horse, so that was dangerous. Yeah, that sounds dangerous. I was like 13. It was fine. Wow. Yeah, it was really scary. Huh. Weird. Why are we talking about this? Why are we talking about my childhood? <laughs> Where does this come from? I don't do the podcast for a month and we're talking about my childhood. <laughs> Your scary, weird childhood. I was at Christian camp, too. So. And that brings us to Savannah Verrett. <laughs> Hello. You have anything about your childhood you'd like to share? Um, I did not ever ride a horse bareback okay. <laughs> in my childhood. Did you ever ride anything bareback? Um, oh, no, I. Wow. <laughs> Who knew I was so Dog, blessed? A lizard. I didn't. I wasn't prepared for this conversation. <laughs> I wasn't either. Well, well, all right. Well, Savannah. So, what what have you been up to? This is Savannah Verrett, our sister of the eighty fourth degree. Um, trying to figure out what day of the week it is. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah, <laughs> doing that in quarantine, and also watching yeah. the birds always. So, keeping an eye on the birds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's more of them out there now. My mom put a bird feeder in my back porch, and I told her not to. And now there's hundreds of them that swarm my backyard. Oh my I don't god! Like <laughs> Savannah is perhaps uh, the alchemical actor most closely identified with postmodern or 21st century conspiracies. So uh, we felt she absolutely had to be present with us today for uh, our our most recent conspiracy in our series. All right, friends, let's have at it. We, the members of the of secret, the secret order, order of alchemical, alchemical actors, actors, do, do solemnly commit ourselves to a, to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as, as far as, as we know it. know it. All right, Olivia, open up those plugs. <gasps> plug, plug, plug. Yeah, that was nice. Was it? I feel like it was probably a little off key, but it's fine. I think you got your feet back in the saddle. Oh, I'm back in the saddle. You're sort of like standing on the saddle. Oh, I'm like riding it, but I'm like still standing. I'm like doing tricks. <laughs> Is that what we're talking about? Some rodeo that's, shit? No? What, Never been to a I'm rodeo, Rob? Okay. Uh, how do you know? I, you can't see if I'm not. No, I asked. I was like, have you ever been to a rodeo before? <laughs> <laughs> it's a genuine question. No, but you're right. I haven't been to a rodeo. Let's talk oh. about our patrons. <laughs> we <laughs> want to welcome Elena W., uh, also, Dan Ooh. S., uh, who is our friend uh, on Instagram, very talented artist uh, who's going to be helping oh, yeah. us uh, with a project uh, that we have in mind for the future. Uh, and Velda, our, our friend Velda from our Facebook group, who pledged $6.66. Oh, uh-huh. hell yeah. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> on brand. 
on brand. Uh, so those are our patrons. Please uh, consider joining our patrons. Uh, we are getting closer and closer to meeting our goal of having the podcast fully funded. Still not quite there. Uh, just need a few more folks to sign on, and, and we hope it will be you. Uh, your your money does go to support the podcast website, uh, the equipment that we use, and uh, all those all that good stuff. Uh, so we hope to see you over there. And Olivia's cooking some stuff up for you. So, you know, bonus, yeah. bonus. Uh, uh, but if you aren't able to join us on Patreon, uh, the next best thing is to rate, subscribe, review, uh, and pass us on to your friends. Spread the word. Uh, let folks know that you are enjoying uh, podcasts. Uh, this is, I, I think, a fact of the industry. Podcasts are most often uh, heard about by word of mouth. So no, any advertising we do or whatever, like that, that comes second third and fourth to somebody saying hey what podcast are you listening to and you saying olivia what do you say i call confessions right so uh that's all i got let's let's close up those plugs plug 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 all right here we go we got to get serious now i mean you don't have to get too serious it's gonna get darker and darker as we go but yeah Yeah. uh (laughs) trigger warning uh yeah we we can't can't do that enough all right, but at first it's going to be a little goofy, so we can have a little bit of fun at the beginning. All oh, right? Cool. You, you up for this, Savannah? I'm ready. I'm ready for anything. Okay. In the last section of Milton William Cooper's Behold a Pale Horse, he publishes a series of documents under the title Documentation, colon, U.S. Army Intelligence Connection with Satanic Church. Facsimiles of government documents are copied directly into the book, complete with government letterhead and signatures, along with an article from a newspaper saying that, quote, Army Brass is unconcerned with Michael Aquino's ties to a satanic temple. And by a satanic temple, we mean, of course, the satanic temple of Anton LaVey. Uh, And Michael Aquino goes on to start his own satanic temple. And uh, there's a memo written by Michael Aquino and a colleague on psychological warfare. So these are the different pieces of documentation that we have that Cooper sort of lines up. The implicit tie between these various documents suggests that the U.S. Army either tacitly or deliberately supports the dissemination of satanic beliefs through covert techniques or a weak brand of mind control. Does that sound true to you guys? Well, Anton LaVey's Satanism isn't about actually worshiping Satan, though. True. So. True story. <laughs> well, but what if we say Satanist beliefs, that the army wants all of America to adopt Satanist beliefs? They want the um, army to do that? No. no they want it just disseminated to the world. Hmm. Well, to America what? anyway. What would be the reason? <laughs> Why, though? Like, I just don't know. <laughs> <laughs> to mind control us. All right, let me get there. For listeners who haven't heard our Satanic Panic episode or don't remember it very well, Michael Aquino was a leading figure in American Satanism, having founded a splinter sect of LaVey's Church of Satan, which Aquino called the Temple of Set, the Egyptian god. Uh, LaVey, he didn't put that Egyptian god part in, that was me explaining. Uh, LaVey had organized the Church of Satan into a series of hierarchical grottos that split apart in 1975 into their own organizations. One of the most famous of these was Aquino's Temple. 
Aquino was an officer in the U.S. Army and became a high priest after his return from a tour in Vietnam. Aquino and his wife, the Satanist priest Lilith Sinclair, then went on to establish their own order, placing the Egyptian god Set on the banner of their new left-handed practice. Right? Does this sound familiar? It's a she has a great name. Um, I'm I'm sure she named herself <laughs> yeah. that, but like, damn, <laughs> <laughs> she picked a good one. Yeah, she sounds like a like an old school movie star crossed she, with you know a Jewish demon. She sounds like an aristocrat, like aristocrat, not like an aristocrat, <laughs> wrong, <laughs> wrong, wrong brand. You know what I meant. Never mind. I got it. I got it. Uh, but one who like murders her servants right in her yeah, spare time. but yeah. is like. Yeah, yeah. You got it. I got it. The Temple of Set uses LaVey's Satanic Bible, but they have a strict quasi-Masonic hierarchy with degrees and initiations. They strive for a kind of self-evolution that places the individual beyond what they consider to be the herd mentality of most of us humans. Both LaVey and Aquino follow Crowley's call to be guided by one's own will, but Aquino places more emphasis on a left-handed magical path. According to the Temple of Set, the left-handed or black magic path is focused on self-gratification, whereas the right-handed or white magic path is about transcending the ego. There are hints of mind control in this system, but to get at them requires some reinterpretation, or perhaps, if we're being honest, misinterpretation of Aquino's program. For Aquino, lesser black magic involves manipulating others to achieve your own ends and includes stage magic, but also propaganda. Hmm. Right? So stuff the army might do to get you to believe birds are real. Right, Savannah? Yeah. Propaganda. Uh, you see it every day. <laughs> All the time. All the time. Bird propaganda. <laughs> Constantly getting letters. It makes me sick. The U.S. Army writes me on a weekly basis, Dear Dr. Thompson, birds are real. Love the Army. Aww. <laughs> That's cute. How many times do you get that letter, Savannah? Oh, I don't get that letter anymore. I have I have a fake address under my official <laughs> government papers. They yeah. gave up on you. Savannah doesn't actually exist anymore. No. I'm hiding she in a She graduated bunker. college and was like, I'm done. I don't need to exist. <laughs> so, uh, greater black magic, by contrast to army propaganda, manipulates the magician's own subjective universe in order to reshape the practitioner's experience and may have an impact on the surrounding world. So one, you're turning inside to shape your own head. The other one, you're turning outside. But turning outside is the easy one. The hard one is reshaping yourself. Amen. Boy, ain't that the truth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, Aquino's military career and prominence in satanic circles recommend him very well to the conspiracy theorist. And as if that isn't enough, he was also proximate to a child molestation scandal in 1986. At the Army base in Presidio, California, daycare provider and former Baptist minister Gary Hambright was arrested for the abuse of 10 children. The trial was dismissed when the children refused to testify, but their claims included instances of satanic ritual abuse, also known by its acronym SRA. 
This was actually fairly common in the 1980s, with dozens of cases of children bringing charges of occult ritual abuse forward, almost all of them imagined through coaching by adults. Aquino was in the army and in California, and so he was very informally implicated in these events by conspiracy theorists. But the army never discovered any reason to charge him. In fact, he stayed with the army until his retirement in 1994. Connecting Aquino to Perfidio was always a stretch, but it's a convenient one for a certain conspiracy narrative, and so it's persisted. If you Google these terms, you can find... Uh, people who are willing to connect them. Now, uh, back to Milton Cooper's documents, uh, which have nothing to do with occult ritual abuse practiced against children, but rather satanic mind control practiced on Americans. All of the Americans. All of them? Wait. All of them. 100%. Jesus. Okay, that's a lot of people. It's a lot of Americans. It's all of them. It's as many it's as many Americans as you can have. <laughs> On the 21st of July, 1981, San Francisco police officer Sandy Daly, intelligence unit, learned about the existence of the Temple of Set and that the leader, Michael Aquino, was a major in the U.S. Army intelligence uh, based in San Francisco. Temple members also included Dennis Mann, uh, who was a male, and Willie Browning, a female. I don't, I'm just letting you know that because their names are a little misleading. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're gender inclusive here at Occult Confessions. Like Aquino, Browning and Mann served in U.S. Army intelligence, except that they were based in L.A. The temple is described as obsessed with the military. They wear, on occasion, says Officer Sandy Daly, World War II Nazi uniforms. Oh, hell wow. no. Yeah. I just want to take a quick second uh, for a tangent here. Historically, conspiracy theory tended to go hand in hand with anti-Semitism. You still remember, right? We did the protocols Mm -hmm. of the elders of Zion. Uh, This was true of Nesta Helen Webster, godmother of conspiracy culture, who was not the last person to draw on the deeply anti-Semitic protocols to craft her theories. Today... Conspiracy theorists have sought to divorce the movement from anti-Semitism. Their conspiracies, especially as they relate to the world of the occult, actually worry over the rise of a Fourth Reich and link Nazism to a fascist conspiracy plot. Think about anybody in the conspiracy circles who talk about Helena Blavatsky, for example, right? Oh, yeah. Right? Whenever they bring her up, it's always that she inspired Hitler, right? Uh, which we totally debunked in our series on Blavatsky, but um, you can see, like this is a this is a like a one eighty for the conspiracy community. Their godmother, Nesta Webster, was totally an anti semite, and the protocols of the elders of Zion were seminal to the development of conspiracy theory as we know it. But today they've flipped it on its head, and it's all about the Nazis as the enemy, and that the Nazis are coming for us, and that a Fourth Reich is rising, and that's a problem. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> if, yes, right. <laughs> if that were the case. Here to call confessions, we think that was a problem. We think the Fourth Reich would be a problem if that were true. But it, it's just it's a weird shift in, in the way the language functions. Uh, so far-right organizations who often overlap with neo-Nazi and white supremacist organizations often share beliefs in a vast satanic conspiracy with these same conspiracy theorists. Isn't that strange? The tangles are simply too, too self-contradictory and idiosyncratic for us to unknot, uh, but I, I just want 
wanted to point it. So that's my tangent. I just want to point that out, right? So conspiracy theories are popular with these guys, like these militias in Idaho, who also often can be anti-Semitic. But people like Milton William Cooper are very openly opposed to anti-Semitism, and they frame their conspiracy theories as being opposed to the rise of the Nazis again. Anyway, all of that because Michael Aquino may or may not have worn a Nazi uniform. Uh, but but if he did, right, this would be something that Cooper would love to include because it tarnishes the reputation of Satanism and occultism. Officer Daly, back to Sandy Daly, had evidence that the temple performed black masses with one scheduled at a hotel in Fisherman's Wharf, and these black masses included animal sacrifice. Daly believed that, te- that the temple was recruiting members from motorcycle gangs, including the Hells Angels. Oh, That's name recognition. There you go. Uh, The intelligence unit identified Michael Aquino as the head of the temple. Daly noted that he had a Ph.D. in political science and was a professor at Golden Gate College in San Francisco. Way to go, Michael Aquino. Dr. Aquino. Then the inter-office memo took a decidedly not-safe-for-work turn. So here we go. Now it's going to get weird and serious. Aquino allegedly had sexual identity problems. Uh, These are quotes. This is in quotes, sexual identity problems, and frequented prostitutes where he engaged in sadomasochistic practices. Sources indicated that he may be bisexual. Uh, And this, again, we have to bear in mind, this is all to tarnish the man's reputation. This is all in the same document that's talking about him wearing Nazi uniforms and, and all this. So they're using his sexuality, whether this is true or not, they're using things that probably we would say are like his own business um, as a weapon against him. When when was this article released? Uh, so this is the early 90s, Cooper's book. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So the second memo in Cooper's chapter is attributed to Aquino himself. And I, I do want to say again that these these memos are just copied into the book without comment, but they're arranged you know, it's it's the arrangement. It's the it's this memo, and then it's the next memo. So they're right after one after the other. Uh, so the the second memo is attributed to Aquino himself, uh, writing with Colonel Paul E. Vallelli on the topic of military psychotronics. Say that one more time: military psychotronics. Is that like? I don't even know. What is that? Is that just using electronics to? I don't know. What is it? <laughs> to <Military>? what? <laughs> to psychically fuck you up? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> I yes. got it. They put the chip in your head. Like, Bill Gates puts the chip in your head, and that's what this is. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Bill Gates is not putting a chip in my head. <laughs> I will I will uh, relax our audience that there are no chips in their heads. The practice seeks to map the minds of neutral and enemy individuals and then to change them in accordance with the U.S. national uh, interests. Oh, you're brainwashing them. Yes. Mm. Uh, So this is done on a wide scale, embracing military units, regions, nations, and blocks. In its present form, it is called psychological operations or PSYOPs. Um, And by present form, we mean 1994. So this huh. is psyops, yeah. So we're, no chips required. I didn't really required. know what psyops meant. <laughs> now I'm like, yeah. huh. They don't okay. need to perform any surgery on your head. They're just going to manipulate you from a distance. 
So defeat in Vietnam is attributed to America's having been outside-opt, say that two times fast, uh, by enemy forces, which critically undercut our American morale. Aquino and Vallely respectfully proposed the creation of a mind war, and let me say mind war is a single word, capital mind, capital war. Uh, no space. This is, what is it? No space. No space. Wow. Mind war. Words are amazing. <laughs> English is weird. <laughs> mind war is the deliberate, aggressive convincing of all participants in a war that we will win that war. Oh, I love and- how it's aggressive. <laughs> it's like, isn't that what they do at every war? Like people don't go into war. <laughs> like, isn't that in- inherently aggressive? I don't it just seems like standard my- practice, doesn't it? It sounds so cheerful, though. Yeah. I don't think you have to point well, out the aggression part is the thing I'm caught up on. So I, I guess the, the, the thing about mind war is that it's preemptive. It's a preemptive attack such that opinions and attitudes must be actively changed from those antagonistic uh, to those supportive if we are to achieve victory. So theoretically, you convince people to like a war before you go to war. Which, again, is just politics. But anyway, psyops. So particularly foreboding or perhaps encouraging if you favor the military superiority of the USA is the scope uh, the project could achieve. The intelligence officers observe that, quoting them, state of the art developments in satellite communication, video recording techniques and laser and optical transmission of broadcasts make possible a penetration of the minds of the world such as would have been inconceivable just a few years ago. But people think I'm crazy for being scared of reptilians. Yep. What's they do. the difference? They do think Rob that. says, yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's the same psychological warfare. Reptilians are coming. So. Okay. I'm yeah. just saying, like. This is obviously. pre-reptilians. This is, this is before we had a reptilian theory. FYI. Right. So they just. Okay. Right. Yeah. I see the pattern. <laughs> <laughs> I see what they did. (laughs) So Mind War uh, is largely achieved through confidently delivered propaganda created to suit the sociological context in which it is received. So in other words, it's just like good propaganda. However, here's where it gets creepy. It also takes advantage of, and I'm quoting again, atmospheric electromagnetic activity. Oh, Air okay. ionization and extremely low frequency waves. I assume sound waves. So <laughs> to mind control people. Yeah, it's it's like your Uncle Sam poster who wants you for the army, but also Uncle Sam poster has a you know it's like a it's more like a greeting card. You open the Uncle Sam greeting card and there's a little chip inside that plays a song that mm-hmm. has it's just super low frequency waves. Why Uncle Sam points at you and your mind zonks out and you're like, I want to join the army. Ooh. I can almost get down with that. No. I believe that. <laughs> Absolutely like, not. <laughs> I mean, the government already uses like sound and like sonic like waves to fuck people up. Right. Like, yeah. it's not that far of a stretch, really. And that's exactly what this podcast is, isn't it? Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Shit, I wasn't going to go that's there. A, but We heal the world. We are healing the world. Yeah, I but, wouldn't compare us to the U.S. military. No. If mm-hmm. the, well, but if a conspiracy theorist is listening, then I think they would define us in pretty yeah. much that way, right? 
because we've spent at least the last nine episodes, like not including my plague episodes, uh, trying to convince people that there's no such thing as an occult conspiracy. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's true. Ah, yeah, we are crafty. We are the man. (laughs) We're the occult man. Uh, so, discovering, creating, and manipulating these conditions can make targets more susceptible to the messages, like we're saying with our Uncle Sam greeting card. Uh, so, Cooper doesn't say this, but he doesn't have to. The juxtaposition of these documents speaks for itself. The San Francisco police memo paints Michael Aquino as a Satan-worshipping pervert. Again, from the perspective of the detective. Not us. Not us. The second reveals that he possesses advanced knowledge techniques for mass psychological manipulation. Between these, a newspaper clipping says that the U.S. Army is well aware of Aquino's ties to Satanism and willing to let him continue in his work, work that involves mass psychological manipulation. So put them all together. The U.S. Army is actively supporting Aquino's plot, knowing full well that he is a black magician. If the Army supports Satanism then the government must support Satanism as well, which means the government must either share Aquino's beliefs or see some value in allowing Satanists to control the population. Since Cooper doesn't say anything about these three documents, we can only guess at his conclusions. Does he mean to say that a government of demon worshippers is secretly manipulating our minds, or that the demon worshippers are attempting to spread their beliefs through psychological manipulation? If Cooper knew anything about Aquino, LeVay, and their inspiration, Alistair Crowley, he'd probably lean more toward the first scenario, but the book itself is inconclusive. So that's, there it is. You're going to write a book and then not, like, address, like, what you mean by it? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I want to say, again, Cooper just barely writes a book in the sense of writing it. What he does is he happens on all these documents and he just oh, arranges right. them. Oh. So, uh, Behold the Pale, Pale Horse, which is arguably the most important book in 1990s conspiracy theory, maybe even well beyond that, is literally just a collection of documents that he found on a fax machine or at a garage sale or, you know, somebody passed to him, you know, under on the QT. That's, that's what we're looking at there. Now, that lays out the groundwork for government cia mind control and its connection to occultism so this is this is deep in the conspiracy literature i mean it's it's in this you know most significant of conspiracy books but now we're going to toggle to a book that is far more challenging to my mind um but much less respected within the conspiracy community and i actually think that that is that further shows that the conspiracy community is is off their rocker because I think this is it's a central text. I think this is an important book uh, that is unfairly maligned by conspiracy theorists. And I'm talking about uh, probably the weirdest thing I've read in maybe <laughs> on this subject. Uh, a book that has so tickled my mind uh, that I'm actually going to, I think I'm going to be developing a research project around this this book. Um, so that's not enough of a lead in to you. This very, like I do a lot of research for this podcast. This is the first time since I started the podcast that I've wanted to pursue one of my topics further than the podcast itself. Uh, I'm speaking about a book called The Transformation of America. And let me spell that out for you now. It's trans, 
hyphen formation of America. America has, is formed trance style. So Michael Aquino, our temple of set guy, also appears in this classic of 1990s conspiracy literature, uh, the most famous first-person abductee narrative about the CIA's unconfirmed Project Monarch. And this is Transformation of America. It's written by Kathy O'Brien uh, and co-written with the man who conducted uh, what she and he call her hypnotic deprogramming, um, and that's Mark Phillips. And this book was published in 1995. O'Brien is the first of a handful of women who claim to have been mind-controlled to serve as a sex slave for the American government's Central Intelligence Agency. So her book doesn't stand alone, it's, but it is the first of its kind. If oh, so we ask, other books came out after yes. hers? Yeah, there's one in particular that we're going to talk about, yeah. Okay. So there were subsequent versions of this tale that followed. So, if we ask conspiracy theorist Fritz Springmeier, and we really shouldn't ask conspiracy theorist Fritz Springmeier anything at all, <laughs> Project Monarch is named after the butterfly. Uh, you guys, the last episode we talked about Fritz Springmeier, he uh, he was involved in the John Todd story as well, and uh, Springmeier's sort of central to uh, developing the concept of CIA sex slave programming. Uh, but he was also convicted of armed robbery. So, oh, okay, yeah. good source. Yeah. So, anyhow, uh, we don't want to no ad hominem here, uh, but you know, you, what can you do? There is no known record of a Project Monarch. But as I mentioned at the start of the episode, irregularities in the filing of documents related to MK Ultra create a space for Project Monarch to be a possible program for which the files have been made to disappear. So we can't say yes or no whether this is true. We just don't have a record of it. So it makes it suspicious. The idea uh, is to, of the Project Monarch program is to program children at a very young age. They're called caterpillars, so that when they emerge from the cocoon of intensive traumatization and hypnosis, they are perfect sex slave butterflies. Don't like that. That's Don't awful. like that at all. You are not going to like anything from here on out. <laughs> I bet you're right. <laughs> I don't think. There may be like glimmers of things you like, but you're not going to like most of this. That's just like taking a basic inspirational premise that people have of the caterpillar to the butterfly and just making it gross. Yeah, it's it's so it's such a pretty image, right? So hopeful. Yeah. It's like a literature theme. <laughs> Right. Poe uses that imagery to discuss uh, death and, and the transition to the afterlife. Right. Like, <laughs> <Oy>. <laughs> anyway. So um, now you might be wondering, uh, Olivia might be wondering, Savannah, maybe you're wondering why exactly one of the most globally powerful spy agencies would have much use for sex slaves. You guys wondering that? Um, um, well, I mean, it makes sense, right? Cults, flirty fish. I'm assuming is this kind of where this is going, maybe? So you mean to recruit people? Or to recruit, I guess, other... Well, I don't know, actually. So, Olivia, the flirting of flirty fishing, just for folks who don't know, is referring to the Children of God. It's a, a fairly popular American religious organization, often called a cult, who used women to... Uh, who They would have sex with men, and then they would say, you want to join my cult. I guess I mean, in this sense, it would be more as, like, getting information, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, like James Bond stuff. Yeah, but like I guess I meant it's kind of culty and in tactic 
of like making these people sex butterflies or whatever the fuck and then using them to get information. I don't know. I'm guessing. All right. So I'm going to make reference to a book by Tracy Twyman, uh, who actually interviewed Kathy O'Brien, and she identifies three contributions that the sex slave can make to a nation's health and prosperity. Number one, they can be used to satisfy the perversion of people in positions of power. Okay, Jesus. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, and that's really fucked up. Number two. They can be used to blackmail public officials and businessmen. Okay, yeah. And number three, they can be prostituted to the wealthy and to create and sell child pornography. Hmm. So we forgot the profit motive here. The CIA has bills to pay, friends. Yeah. Uh, So yeah, actually none of those are your version, Olivia. None of it is spy stuff, really. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's spy stuff, but... I guess the blackmail is a little bit close, but not really. Yeah, yeah. It's a different kind of spy stuff. Okay, so as I've done with all of our conspiracy theorists, from this point forward, I'm going to try to summarize Kathy O'Brien's story from her perspective. And as with all of the conspiracy claims we've talked about, about her narrative, um, while profoundly difficult to believe... Um, both because of its extreme scope and depravity, uh, it's also impossible to completely disprove in almost any of its particulars. And and I could say that about any of the conspiracy theorists we discussed. So uh, I'm going to share it in the style she's recorded it uh, as I try to make some sense of it. In addition to the content warning that I led the episode with, I want to let you know that while I don't believe much of what Kathy O'Brien says personally, I also find her account to be one of the most intellectually challenging things I've ever wrapped my mind around. Seriously. Seriously. I yeah, was, you were pretty baffled yeah. by it when you were I, talking to me about it. Yeah, it, it it's intense. Uh, and I actually discovered some truth and value in what is otherwise, as I keep saying, incredibly difficult to believe, at least on the surface. So you are... <laughs> I don't want... I don't want our listeners to think that I've lost my mind uh, and that, you know, I'm, I'm on board with all this stuff that I'm about to share. Uh, but I just I was so taken with how insightful a criticism of power this is, that it is very difficult for me not to admire what she's doing. And I, I'm going to say another thing about Kathy O'Brien. Unlike many of the other conspiracy theorists we've discussed she is not apparently anti-Semitic, or at least not in the book, right? In in her spoken statements, like there's no, like black mark on her, you know, reputation on on her as a person. She hasn't robbed any banks. She hasn't raped anybody, which you know, unfortunately, is the case for a lot of these conspiracy theorists. She was never involved in a shootout with with um, the Bureau of Tobacco and Firearms. So, you know, she's just she's okay. She's okay. This story is is really crazy. I mean, it. it I don't want to say crazy. I, I'm going to walk that back. This. It's. It's. It's just intense. It's really hard to believe. Um. So, but I. I, I just like her. I guess I, I like this woman. Why so. isn't she respected by the other conspiracy theory people? Not that that's like something to be proud of, but you know, she's a woman for one. I was thinking that. I think. I d- but ladies, let's not get ahead of ourselves. I do think Olivia's right, and I think Savannah, that's important. But I want you to hear what she has to say first, uh, yeah, and yeah. then I I want to let you guys comment what why you think 
she has problems, whereas, you know, some of these other folks we've talked about don't. All right. So let's get into it. Okay. So Kathy was recruited into Project Monarch, again, according to her, when the government discovered that she had been primed for mind control by her father. Okay. Now, again, this is going to get dark. So seriously, if you have children in the room. Get them out. Put the headphones on. Yeah, get them out, whatever. Or, you know, wait for tonight. Bring me to bed with you. But that's enough. No children. Maybe don't go to bed to this, though. Well, yeah. I don't know what kind of dreams. Anyway. (laughs) It's good advice. Ugly. Good advice. Um, Okay, so make sure you have a palate cleanser right before you go to bed. Oh. So Kathy's father is Earl O'Brien. And he had sexually abused his daughter almost from the time she was born. And Kathy had developed multiple personalities in order to cope with that abuse. Kathy's family suffered from a pattern of abuse going back generations. Both her father and mother had been sexually abused by her grandparents when they were children. On her father's side, the abuse had occult dimensions. And on her mother's side, there was a connection to the Masonic Blue Lodge in Newaygo, Michigan. Does she say, like, where... Did did her parents tell her this? Or did she, like... Does she say, like... I think we imagine that it has come, that this is just how she was raised. So this is part of... With this knowledge. The way she understands. Her, yeah, it's, it's her firsthand experience, yeah. Okay. So one weekend while camping, a passing hunter caught her father and uncles passing her around at their campsite sexually, right, for to use for sex or whatever they were having her do. Various sex acts, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Uh, rather than risk having his pedophilia and incest exposed, Earl O'Brien shot the man and her uncles buried him somewhere in the woods. Oh, my Jesus. Uh, again, this is from her, right? <laughs> so, right, right. I know. I, I'm not telling you this is easy to all believe, right? So Earl made his money by selling drugs and peddling homemade child pornography of his daughter and also his son. When he was caught selling images of Kathy and a dog... This is just the beginning. If you, bestiality is going to be with us throughout this entire narrative. So that's just step one, right? So again, I can't warn anyone enough about what's happening right now to your ears. Okay. When he was caught selling images of Kathy and a dog, Representative Gerald Ford of Michigan's 5th Con- Congressional District, who had served on the Warren Commission to investigate the Kennedy assassination, and for those of you who know your presidents, would go on to be number 38 offered Earl immunity from prosecution if he would enroll his daughter in the CIA's ultra-secret Project Monarch, a division of the suite of CIA operations grouped under the title MKUltra. So, got me? Are we following this story? Yeah. Yep. So he's doing a bunch of illegal stuff. For some reason, Gerald Ford catches him and Just offers, happened to be in town. Right, and offers to, you know, he say, oh, I have an opportunity here because you've been abusing your children so much i think they would be great for this project we're doing with the cia so he was not president at this time he was no he was not president at the, he wouldn't be president until the 1970s and uh so i think this is probably the late 60s okay uh given what we know about earl so far it should come as no surprise that he agreed right away mm. and uh he was sent off to harvard university where a team of specialists trained him on how to intentionally complete the programming he had inadvertently started so this child pornographer is now at harvard okay working for the cia Yep. All right. What Earl got? Yeah, good. We're just good, right? That's good. 
times. So what Earl had unintentionally done was begin splitting Kathy's personality up into compartments. This is a very important part of this story, this dissociation. He'd instigated her multiple personalities or dissociative identity disorder is the preferred term today. The CIA wanted Earl to develop these compartments into separate personalities that would function in their sex slave operation. The benefit of dissociative identity disorder is that each personality would not remember the activities of the other, and so the secret nature of Kathy's activities would remain a secret even to her throughout her career. She wouldn't know her own secrets. Traumatizing Kathy became a civic responsibility for Earl, and he prostituted her to his friends, to local mobsters, to the Freemasons, to his relatives, to the Satanists, to police officers, and just to strangers walking by. How old was she at this point? Uh, so I would say she's moving. Uh, she has been abused from birth, basically. Mm. But now I think we're moving up into the uh, tween years. In addition to this abuse, the training required that Earl instill neurolinguistic themes into Kathy's psyche, mostly based on Disney movies. Oh, shit. Oh, God. Disney's coming into the conspiracy now? I actually love this part about it, Savannah, but you're I'm not sure going to you love do. it when I. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. When I get to analyzing this, yeah. Anyway, in her childhood, the dominant theme was Cinderella, but later themes included Peter Pan, Alice in Wonderland, and then The Wizard of Oz, uh, which became an important part of her training and work for the CIA. Wizard of Oz, of course, not a Disney movie, but nevertheless, a, a big childhood movie, right? <clears throat> so, this, in my opinion, is the most credible part of Kathy's story, meaning everything that I've said so far. The idea that she was sexually abused as a child, perhaps severely, is not only a possible basis for her version of events, but also a viable explanation for why she would have imagined the disturbing and elaborate life story that she's really only begun to tell, and I've only really begun to share with you all. Some kind of serious trauma may have been the seed that grew into the fantastic scenarios Kathy imagined and may have fractured her personality in such a way that she was able to convince herself that these scenarios were all real. She may not have been passed around between the sheriff and the town Satanist, but some childhood trauma must have led her to think that she was. Yeah? So I'm not saying that Earl necessarily shot a man in the woods and she was passed around to the uncle or any of this. Uh, I just think that the most likely thing is that there was some abuse and the abuse probably was truly disturbing and nothing we would want to have happen to us or our children or anyone we love or anyone ever at any time. I mean, if she has DID or had DID, then any of her alters could think that any situation is possible. Right. Yeah. So I'm not saying that every every detail of that is 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 what I believe, but I I think that there is the nuggets of truth in there are much larger than they will be as we get further on. Uh, Okay. now, Savannah, here we go. The mention of Disney as a programming device is also, in my opinion, strangely insightful. Disney movies do program children to believe certain things about themselves and their culture that ideally they later come to question. The concept of a woman waiting for a man to save her, for example. Or the implied value system of a narrative in which the hero or heroine succeeds by becoming the master or mistress of a feudal estate. That is to say, a prince or a princess. (laughs) Those are just terrible, terrible themes. Um, Disney movies, right? Think about all the peasants they have to oppress now that they got married. (laughs) Yeah. 
Cinderella, right? Now she's the princess, so she can oppress the uh, underlings. Disney movies are a are also a corporate product with a profit motive. They aren't designed to improve our children. They're designed to get our children to consume the movie and the product lines that spin off of the movie. O'Brien means for us to take her Disney programming literally, but if we read just a little bit beyond the literal message, she's actually making a pretty good point about the commodification of childhood. Thank you, Kathy O'Brien. So I think, okay, so now hopefully everyone, listeners, friends, confessors, you're starting to understand why I like Kathy. It's not because I believe everything that she's saying. It's because I really think she is making an insightful and disturbing commentary on corporate power and power generally, political power, power across the board. That's really all conspiracy is. Uh, in yeah. theory. I mean, a lot of well, conspiracy theorists want to be believed. And, and they're not all... I don't think they do it. She is just extra good at it because her story is so messed up. I mean, the potential for a, a father or, or the patriarchy, right? We could think about patriarchal power is yeah. embodied in Earl, which is, you know, sexually dominating a helpless child. So, I mean, there's a lot of interesting critique just going on in that story. And it's so unsettling and disturbing like it makes you you take any like rated r horror movie like this makes that look like you know it's for kids yeah they can't make this into a movie she i mean yeah she's just like mm, she's so it's just so emotionally compelling the story yeah. that she's telling that it forces you to like confront the actual darkness underneath of our culture and society it's also something that i feel like most people would not want to share with the world yeah you know what i mean so the fact that she is is like in of itself i feel like yeah yeah, you guys don't have to love her because i do but i just anyway so (laughs) you're you're welcome to i welcome you to thank you for welcoming us (laughs) I i don't want to make you feel like you have to you can because it's 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 tough. It's it's a it's not a story that I think you we any of us should believe in all of its details. Okay, so she says she considered becoming a nun. Here we go as a means of escaping her circumstances until that is a priest made her give him oral sex in the confessional. Nowhere is safe. She realized at that point that the church would just be a continuation of what she'd known at home. Ouch! Dark. Oh. Ah. Yeah, that's pretty pointed. Right. It's perfect. It's so it's it's prescient. Stories of sexual crimes against children among the clergy had been surfacing in the U.S. since the 1960s, and they were picking up steam in the 1990s, but they wouldn't become international news until the early 2000s. Kathy's book, published in 1995, would have been ahead of the curve. Not an anomaly, but ahead of the curve. Her willingness to speak to power, often outlandishly, makes her attack on the Catholic Church seem almost inevitable and, let's be honest, deserved. For sure. Right? Like, it, it's just incredible. Like, she, there's no target she misses. Yeah, she basically said, on the way, let's just take down the church. Yeah, yeah. this is this takes like a page. Let's take like, a pit stop. <laughs> yeah, this isn't, this isn't even a chapter. This is like a page. A oh, quest, I thought about yeah. becoming a nun, but then the priest asked me to blow him in the confessional. And boom, like that image. Moving on. <laughs> yeah, like it says everything about the conspiracy within the Catholic Church. Real conspiracy, right? Yeah. I, I, let's take a second here. We'll keep going, but let's take a second. I, I don't want anyone listening to think after I've done this series that I don't believe there are actual conspiracies. I I do. I know there are. It's just that 
I don't believe there's an occult conspiracy because if you uh, analyze the occult conspiracies, if you look at the evidence that there isn't there. But was there a conspiracy to cover up uh, the priest's abuse of children? Absolutely there was. Are there political conspiracies to cover things up or to convince us to, for example, go to war with Iraq? Absolutely there are. I mean, look at Epstein. That's pretty recent. It's a conspiracy, <laughs> yes. So these are conspiracies. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of, you know, like the Alex Jones types aren't actually attacking the real conspiracies that are out there. They're so busy inventing conspiracies that they're distracting us from the real ones. And they're in fact taking away from the fact that there are these conspiracies that exist that are problem. They make conspiracy look ridiculous because Mm -hmm. they go into the QAnon, you know, Pizzagate, all this insanity, but they're real. They're really out there. Anyway, (sighs) after, so I feel like I'm doing a 180 from what I've done this entire series, but I'm not, I'm not, I, I, the the satanic ritual abuse and the, all that is, you know, it's, it is a panic and it's nonsense and it's falsely maligning people, our people, right? But these people aren't good Satanists. Like, no, 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 absolutely not. They're not honoring the rights of others, right? No, No, they're breaking a million rules. There's like, Yeah. Um, but, uh, that doesn't mean that conspiracies don't exist. So anyway, it's just not the crazy conspiracies, the new world order conspiracies that that's not out there, but there are conspiracies within corporations and things. So anyway, here we go. After failing to find relief through Catholicism, O'Brien begins her life as a sex slave to a, to powerful men. Okay. I want to reiterate here that none of O'Brien's claims about any of these men are substantiated. And in repeating her story, I am making no claims about their relative truth or falsehood. I do not want to get sued. You said she's like a tween now? Uh, She's working her way into her teenage years. Okay, just checking. Okay, so now we're going to name drop actual politicians. Oh, shit. We're doing a Dante's Inferno. (laughs) It's going to get intense. But uh, one more time, we are not vouching for any of these things. We are simply repeating the claims made in this book. Kathy says that Gerald Ford, while still a congressman in Michigan, is among the first national politicians to violate her. Next, she's used by Canada's prime minister, who just so happens to be the father of Canada's current prime minister, Pierre Trudeau. No. Yeah, who is, you know, people really like Pierre Trudeau, the Canadians, um, a popular guy, right? So much so that his son was able to, you know, succeed. People love his son. I don't know anything about him, but... Him as well. Yeah, he was very well uh, liked at the time period. Anyway, Mm. her proximity to the Canadian border put her on the shortlist for diplomatic service, dark diplomatic service, let's say. She says, quote, Trudeau expertly manipulated my mind with sophisticated hypnotic language. Not only did he enlist my silence for the pedophile perversions he indulged in, but he instructed my school of thought in a manner that equated to programming. So, although her hypnotic programming would continue throughout her enslavement, around this time she was considered sufficiently trained to receive a high-level master, the man who would remain her master or handler until her term as a sex slave expired on her 30th birthday. Oh, I shouldn't say handler. Oh my Jesus! Yeah, she was going to be a sex slave. Till they're 30? Yeah, till you're 30. They're not even like kids anymore let me also say uh, or, or let me say at this moment to my 31 32 35 year old listeners you are very attractive women you're not over the hill no, by any stretch that's of the imagination not what I'm, saying. I'm saying <laughs> uh, i'm saying i thought that they you know they were into the younger the 40 year old women 50 year old women attractive women i know i know i know you're not, not saying, saying it but it's sort of implied <laughs> that when you're thir- after after you're 30 then 
I mean, let's uplift our subscribers, but still. (sighs) The master uh, was Senator Robert C. Byrd. Uh, So that's her her hypnotic master, uh, who she accused of torturing her with sadistic sexual rituals. Okay. Byrd took her to meet Dick Cheney, who instructed her to strip down and run naked into the forest where he hunted her for sport. Oh, my God. Jesus Christ. This is just the free... (laughs) This, do we need a moment? Do we need a minute to absorb that? Where Dick Cheney hunted hunted naked Kathy for sport. Yeah. Um. <laughs> oh. So now this is just actually the first of several occasions in which O'Brien claims that she was hunted by Dick Cheney. Uh, she sur- what? Go ahead. I no, I don't have anything to say. Keep going. <laughs> she survived the hunt. Survived the hunt, but was uh, naturally further traumatized by it. So she's like an a unfolding series of traumatizing events. How do you survive the hunt? I'm oh, sorry. Well, he, no, I'm getting, like, caught up on Yeah, do you just like outlast, outlive? Yeah. yeah, that's it. Okay, like there's a timer. Okay. Yep, you just outlast him. I'm pretty sure that's a Criminal hmm. Minds episode. <laughs> like, I'm not even joking. Like, that's absolutely insane. It's a short story we all have to read in like the ninth grade, right? The most dangerous game. Yeah. Man. So Cheney, uh, so let's take a moment and analyze the stick Cheney moment, shall we? Because we're all, everyone's, <laughs> I think we're all a little, our brains are tingling. Cheney shows the degree to which uh, what O'Brien is doing and has been doing all along is a kind of caricature. A caricature can be funny, but not in a way that causes anyone with a developed brain to laugh out loud. Like those caricatures you get at the Six Flags. More often than not, it makes its subject ugly by exaggerating the subject's flaws. Like, you don't see a caricature on, you know, you know how when you're a kid, you get the caricature done, and like your dad does, and you hang them on the wall? Nobody laughs at that. No one's like, ah, boy, they got you with that tennis racket. It's, it's, it's just an exaggeration. So that's, I, I, in my opinion, with when we get to these actual human beings, right, these figures that have a national international reputation she's creating these literary caricatures of them making them ugly by exaggerating their flaws so it's most obvious when she takes on masculinity or masculine power masculine power in her view is cold detached and deeply objectifying it transforms human girls into living tools in the hands of people like senator bird but it's also violent and dangerous, as in Cheney's most dangerous game. When this power seeks to sexually control its victims, it transforms them into objects, depriving them of freedom and agency. The caricature is personal, but it's also general. We might not believe that Dick Cheney hunted people, but we know cold, inhuman violence is in his nature. Yes, war for oil. And we know that men in positions of power can dehumanize and endanger women without much thought for their well-being. Harvey Weinstein, Jeffrey Epstein, Bill Clinton, Gary Condit, on and on and on. The most dangerous game scenario is exaggerated to the point of being ridiculous, but it's also got a truth that draws to the surface through that exaggeration. So it's sort of like drawing the poison out, you know what I mean? It just is making me feel kind of gross. Um, It is really incredible, like, how it's drawing out all these other things that are just terrible. (laughs) Like... It's like the world is a is a like a sanitized version of of what she's done. So her stuff is not sanitized anymore. It's she's stripped away all the like prim and proper veneer on things and we just see the like gut ugly stuff underneath. 
it just makes you feel like the whole world is terrible. Uh, and I don't, I don't think it is, but yeah, it the world is full of this kind of evil. Yeah. Just covered up and masked and hidden. And she takes that mask away and says, nope, it's like this. The caricature idea works across the spectrum of abuse she describes. The sexual aspects of the Roman Catholic confessional, where believers share intimate feelings, secret desires, and transgressions with the priest, becomes a site for oral sex, for example, right? Like, the confessional site already is kind of sexual in nature. It always has been, because you're confessing these sins, which are often sexual. Um, And then it becomes a literal site for sex in, in her like version of it when you put her lens on it which strips away everything else we just see that dark underbelly the shattering of childhood innocence by apparent sexual abuse becomes even uglier in the opening line of her account in which she imagines her father trading out her mother's breast milk for his semen oh my jesus what i can't keep like i feel like i should warn you before every sentence but i can't i can't just keep doing that (laughs) yeah i know yeah so that's that's the opening line of her portion of the story Everything gets worse in the warped world of her program psychosis in a way that makes us viscerally feel the deep darkness underlying the counterpart crimes, people, and institutions in the real world. But let's get back to that story. After Senator Byrd took control of her as her master, the next order of business was to assign her a handler. So we have a master and a handler, separate guys. At this point, the world of politics begins to overlap with the world of country music. In oddly specific what? ways. Yes, country music. Like, I'm confused. <laughs> country music is helping rule, like, with the government? Yes, country music is way into this conspiracy to control sex slaves. Oh. So, she meets Wayne Cox at the Opry uh, when he was playing in Jack Green's band. Cox was, like her, a mind control slave. Uh, only instead of being programmed for sex, he had been trained for, and I'm quoting, paramilitary mercenary operations as part of the CIA's freedom train operations, and he played in Jack Green's band as a side gig. O'Brien and Cox were instructed to get married by the CIA or Senator Byrd, and their marriage was the beginning of his assignment to be her handler. Cox brought her to the backwoods of his hometown swamp in Chatham, Louisiana, for months at a time for what she called occult traumatization. Cox had been... Okay, so here's where it's going to get occulty. Cox had been brought up in an unspecified witchcraft tradition by his mother. In a weird side note, Kathy says that her husband admittedly longed for his mother sexually and ritually. And I mean that by really just a weird side note. She just sort of tosses that in and never explores it any further. Together, Cox and his mother subjected Kathy to their beliefs, which Kathy says included what equates to, uh, quoting, a weakened version of mind control used by witches for centuries, anchored in superstition rather than scientific fact. These superstitious beliefs seemingly conflicted with Cox's mercenary training to the point that his killing raged out of control. For example, Cox would murder a human through repeated stabbings with a knife, believing that the departing spirit and splattered blood gave him power to control Kathy's mind. In truth, Kathy says, it was my aversion and subsequent traumatization by the event that caused me to dissociate in trance, leaving my subconscious open to his suggestion and those of others. So, in other words, 
it's Cox's uh, superstition that has him stabbing wildly at this person, but all she has to do is witness a murder and she trances out. It really doesn't matter how bloody he gets. It's interesting that she logics that even in the face of like a supernatural trauma. Do you know what I mean? Go on. It's interesting she can still like logically come to some kind of, well, he was doing this, but it was really only impacting me because it was traumatic. Do you know, I I mean, it's hard to kind of, I guess maybe she had some perspective afterwards, but it's hard to have that perspective when you're actually enduring trauma. It's very, it would be way easier for her to be like, to latch onto it being supernatural. Do you know what I'm saying? She's going to ultimately break with the supernatural pretty hardcore, uh, but it's all up in this part of of her story with Cox. So she has a very jaded attitude toward the occult. So um, she says, during the three years I was with Cox, he ritually impregnated and aborted me six times. Okay. This is going to get worse. Why? Consuming several of his own offspring and preserving the others shaped in ceramic for sale in an interstate occult body parts business. What in the fuck is... I'm sorry, right. but So this but is what? the point where we do get a little miffed at Kathy, yes. This is... This is a bizarre and unpleasant caricature of a, of occultism. So it's unclear whether this occult initiation in the bayou was part of what the government intended Cox to do uh, to Kathy or just a happy accident in that it furthered her programming. Leaving aside the outrageous abortion talk for just a minute, there's an interesting parallel between O'Brien's relationship with her father and Cox's with his mother. Think about that, right? O'Brien doesn't lay this all out, right? This is just like a throwaway line. But we can imagine that Cox's neo-pagan mother abused him as a child. So this seemingly out-of-place comment about his incestuous desires is actually linking him to Kathy, who was sexually abused as a child by her father. And probably the government learned about his split personalities and recruited Cox the same way they did O'Brien. So there's actually this weird, not weird, but like good internal consistency to her story. Okay. Both of them abused by the opposite sex parent, both of them recruited by the CIA. It just sort of makes sense. I see what you're saying. Hoy. But yeah, the occult abortions and body parts and stuff, no, that that does not make sense. And there even might, and Cox is, is, she doesn't describe him as being African-American, but there's even like a hint of, of racism there on account of, the, the bayou of Louisiana is closely associated with voodoo, an Afro-Caribbean mm. and Afro-American religion. Well, that's what I was kind of confused about when you were talking about, like, the neo-pagan angle. I was kind of like, well, why are they, it feels why are they in Louisiana? Yeah. So, anyway, all uncool. Kathy is brought to Tinker Air Force Base, where her programming is further advanced. Taking on a new Peter Pan theme at Tinker Air Force Base with Cox as Pan and Kathy as... Tinkerbell, she's placed in a cage with an electrified grid bottom and programmed using direct current electricity. After her cage indoctrination, Kathy's job description shifts. She begins working in the CIA's cocaine trafficking operation, managed in part by William Jefferson Clinton, then governor of Arkansas and the future 42nd president of the United States. Wait, I'm confused. So she, now she's working in... The CIA with, moves with her what? around from operation to operation. So after she's... She's still a sex slave, but now she's a sex slave who also traffics cocaine. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Sprinting that. to keep up here. At this point, 
Kathy has her first and only child, a daughter named Kelly. Following the birth, Kathy is physically and psychologically wrecked, she says, and Bird orders Cox to bring her away from the Louisiana swamps to Nashville. Cox didn't care for Nashville, preferring to live in the swamp, and although the CIA had him programmed and could have made him just stay there to handle Kathy, for some reason they let him go back to his mommy and continue raising goats and performing infanticide, one would assume. Actually, we don't have to assume. Kathy says that's what he does when he goes home. Wait, why do why would they let have her have a kid? Yeah, I was just thinking that. You why would you guess? I guess if her kid was also going to get put in the yep. same thing. Yep, absolutely. Mm. Especially a daughter. Okay. Perfect. Well, am I going to think Kathy is a shit mother? I don't know if you're going to be thrilled with this. So Cool. Also Great. like continued abuse. Does Let's she know go. who the father was or was it It's she thinks it's Wayne Cox, yeah. And I think that there's no alternative. I think oh, it's okay. the only man. I guess that. Well, I mean it, She's a sex slave, but yeah, I think it's Wayne Cox. So around this time, it's the early 1980s, but she doesn't get any more specific than that. She keeps things sort of vague. She was reprogrammed by Michael Aquino at Fort Campbell in Kentucky. Here he comes. Here comes Michael Aquino. We've been waiting for you, Michael. She says that Aquino, quoting, Aquino used his occultism, and she puts in parentheses here, blood trauma as a trauma base. So his occultism is blood trauma. But his programming was high-tech and clean, not muddled in a proverbial witch's brew of ignorance. So Aquino has this, like, cleaner, more psychologically, um, I guess, perfected version of occult traumatization. So Aquino cleaned out Cox's influence because Senator Byrd asked him to, and it replaced it, I assume, with Aquino's own influence. Kelly, her daughter, was also programmed by Aquino with electricity and sexual abuse, but without any occultism. So Kathy programmed with occultism. Kelly is programmed with electricity and sex. All of the techniques Aquino used in programming both Kathy and her daughter Kelly were developed by NASA. Does that make sense? Follow me? Uh, Yes. So, O'Brien's description of Aquino shows the contrast she strikes between occult practice with the CIA's more scientific programming, occult ritual abuse or satanic ritual abuse using satanic or neo-pagan themes is littered throughout the narrative, her narrative, but it's always portrayed as either window dressing or nonsense. O'Brien gives the impression that Cox's occult abuse in the swamps of Louisiana, for example, are unintentionally effective. Cox and his mother are programming her, but they don't know how or why it's working. They believe their occult power or some supernatural forces involved, but Kathy frames these things as superstition. Do you see? So occultism is just an illusion. The CIA achieves the same ends, but they understand it through the sober lens of biology and psychology, and Aquino sort of like is on the in the middle of things. He gets it, he understands it, but he also understands the that's what this clean blood trauma occultism is it's this it's occultism but understood as a psychological technique rather than as something magical so as a way of discrediting her husband o'brien says that he believed in nature spirits so getting back to you know uh her tarnishing of occultism uh he believed that jesus was an alien that the bermuda triangle was a portal to another dimension for her these are all like ridiculous things that wayne cox believed which make him seem ridiculous and because he's an occultist he just believes all this paranormal nonsense 
In the same thought, she said that he admired Jim Jones and Charles Manson and claimed that Satan was everywhere. He brought her to a Mormon church where he led occult rituals. Let me say that again. He brought her to a Mormon church where he led occult rituals, showing that even these seemingly Christian spaces were tainted with demonic activity, particularly in the Mormon church, says Kathy O'Brien. Occultism comes off as a kind of inadvertently effective ancient technique that has been rationalized and streamlined through scientific investigation. Her daughter Kelly's programming is more elevated than Kathy's, and she describes it that way because it does not involve occult themes. Kelly is programmed directly through the use of electricity. Science and electricity are then more advanced versions of occultism a somewhat outdated anthropological concept of technology as the replacement for magical belief. This is actually a trope in the literature that I read um, that is outdated. We don't, we don't understand technology as a replacement for occultism, but she's literally rehashing this in her story. What's interesting is that both science and the occult are black magical arts, not only capable, but primarily oriented toward achieving terrible ends. So science is not like this neutral force. It's kind of evil. Occult pursuit, defined in terms of human and animal sacrifice, and scientific pursuit lack any sort of human feeling for their subjects. They just don't care about the people that they're doing these things to. Knowledge, whether it comes from the occult or from science, is an entry onto a kind of power, and power is synonymous with abuse, corruption, and unfettered depravity in Kathy O'Brien's world. Wow, that's a lot. That brings us to today's segment. Isn't it? We're not even, we're not even, we got more. We got more to do. <laughs> but I'm taking a break. Uh, we are going to do a segment now. Oh. A segment. The word you may have been wondering about. Oh, this is, this is back. And uh, today's word is one that I say an awful lot, uh, but I, I've, I don't think I've ever given it uh, its own little moment. And that is the word neo-pagan. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, let's define that. So neo, N-E-O, is a prefix uh, that we use to mean something old that's been made new again and is frequently played by Keanu Reeves in the movies. Thank you for that one. <laughs> <laughs> the, the original pagans were the ancient people of Rome and Greece who believed in a pantheon of gods and spirits that directly influenced or resided within the natural world and could be appealed to directly to influence that natural world. You know, we, we, I'm saying the original pagans, it's really from a Christian mindset. We could arguably go back earlier. Today's neo-pagans um, are more like, are generally identified with Wiccans, uh, but also various kinds of witches, wizards, warlocks, who do not consider themselves Wiccan. Also druids, but and some, but not all, varieties of New Ager. So these are all the different people who can be considered new, uh, neo-pagan. People like spiritualist mediums and Blavatskian theosophists usually aren't included with the neo-pagans because they aren't as concerned with the worship or invocation of spirits or gods dwelling in nature. Do you see the difference? Blavatsky's people turn to ascended masters, spiritualists turn to the spirits of the dead, which, like neo-pagans, have their roots in ancient tradition, but unlike neo-pagans, don't have a direct connection to the natural world. That's all. That's that's today's word that you may have been wondering about. Hooray! Ooh. Clap, clap, clap. I love how you said clap. Said clap <laughs> I didn't want to move my hands. <laughs> I feel that. <laughs> Let's get back to our, our dark tale here. Bird placed, Senator Bird placed Kathy with a, isn't that great, Savannah, that you're here today and we're talking about the dark dealings of Senator Bird? I've been thinking about it but you know 
I wanted to be not respectful, but I don't know. I don't know what the word is. Maybe it's not the time to talk uh, about the birds. (laughs) Kind of an odd pun. Yeah. Anyway unintentional odd pun. So Senator Byrd placed Kathy with a new handler, and this handler's name was Alex Houston. This is where it gets like weirder, not darker, but weirder. Alex Houston was a country music ventriloquist. For real, this is a real person who appeared across the United States at country music shows with his puppet Elmer. (laughs) Houston functioned much like Cox ritually impregnating Kathy and then aborting the babies, but he did not do it out of any sort of occultism. Wait. Again, oh, well, This happened ahead. to her twice from two different people? She's now with her second husband who is doing the same thing, yeah. Why is he doing the, the abortion-y thing if it's not occulty? Or, you know? He's just traumatizing her, I, I believe. Jesus Lord, okay. Yeah. So, again, this is O'Brien implicitly denigrating the occult approach. Um, as quite literally backwoods superstition confined to the Louisiana Bayou. Houston, unlike the benighted neo-pagan Cox, knew that these abortions were simply part of her programming. Kathy says, and I'm quoting, a difference between Cox and Houston was the superstition factor. Houston knew exactly what he was doing and why he was doing it in accordance with tried and proven scientific U.S. government mind control research and development. Houston had learned these techniques while touring with Bob Hope's USO tours. Now, I want you both to remember Bob Hope, uh, because before we're done, we've got to come back to him and not with fond memories of a buddy comedy he made with Bing Crosby. Okay. Kathy claims to have married Alex Houston, but she referred to the wedding as a kind of show. Now, I actually searched around for information about Alex Houston, uh, but unfortunately... A country music ventriloquist from the 1980s didn't rate a Wikipedia page, uh, and his obituary listed a family, but no mention of Kathy among his survivors. There are a number of truly unusual things about Houston's inclusion in this narrative. So far, other than her actual ex-husband Wayne Cox, the men she's engaged with are legitimately powerful and reasonably well-known. Alex Houston, who plays an important role in this story, doesn't fit this pattern at all. I'll give you an example. In one chapter, she meets Jimmy Buffett, the mayor of Margaritaville. Oh, wow. A questionable... What? Nothing. (laughs) A questionable musical talent by any stretch of the imagination, but Jimmy Buffett is still A-list famous, right? We can all agree he's famous. Buffett is a contact that helps her into the CIA's drug trade, which, as President Ronald Reagan explains to Kathy, is necessary to help fund the CIA's extra-legal activities in Nicaragua and Afghanistan. Since the U.S. government can't officially fund these operations, they sell cocaine to pay for them. Reagan calls this whole scheme America's freedom train. Kathy also helps to create what what she calls Uncle Ronnie's bedtime stories— which are pornographic tapes directed by Michael Dante, often involving bestiality, that help put the president to sleep at night. What the fuck? Well, the man's got to sleep. So before Morning in America, we all went to bed Jesus. with some bestiality porn. Well, okay. okay. So, 
Jimmy Buffett, Ronald Reagan, Gerald Ford, Bill Clinton, and country music ventriloquist Alex Houston. <laughs> He's it's just a weird guy to include with all these very famous people. Do you see what yes. I mean? Yeah. Even Michael Dante, the guy who directed Uncle Ronnie's Bedtime Stories, was a relatively well-known TV and movie actor appearing in the original Star Trek and on Knott's Landing, which was a nighttime soap opera, as well as Bonanza, Get Smart, Get Smart and The Six Million Dollar Man. But Alex Houston was the opening act for the opening act at a country western show. So that is just, really weird. Isn't it? Isn't it strange? Like I don't know if that adds credibility or takes away. It could be that Houston made it into the pages of Kathy's account because she actually knew him in some capacity. It's highly unlikely Wayne Cox was a Bayou warlock selling babies encased in ceramic on the black market, but Kathy probably was married to a man named Wayne Cox. I, I didn't track that down. The fact that there's no readily available connection between O'Brien and Houston except for this book could be a sign that they never met, or that the CIA covered up the link if we ask a, a conspiracy theorist, or that Houston didn't want to be associated with her after she teamed up with Mark Phillips and wrote Transformation of America. Could be any of these things. In the 1980s, things go off the rails for Kathy O'Brien. At the senator's request, Senator Byrd, her... V- oh, they go off the rails now? Yeah. Oh, yeah. This, is, this has been light reading so far. Oh, my God. At Senator Byrd's request, her vagina is mutilated to better accommodate the senator's small penis and to appear... <laughs> what? I'm sorry. Yes. And to appear like the face of a witch. <gasps> what? What? She gets involved in arms deals, drug deals, and international espionage. She assisted Michael Dante in creating blackmail tapes of international politicians involving sexual acts with Project Monarch slaves, and these tapings are done at Bohemian Grove in Northern California, where international politicians are encouraged to indulge their perversions with the sex slaves while unknown to them. The director, Dante, captures it all on film. The Grove, so Bohemian Grove is a is a trope in conspiracy right. theory. Have you guys heard of this yeah, before? Yeah, no, one hundred percent. So, what have you heard about it, Olivia? Uh, the History Channel loves it. Oh, really? Um, I just, well, you know, like the that. conspiracy, like about the founding fathers, like you know, I don't know. They always end up talking about Bohemia, Bohemian Grove, or whatever. I actually watched something where they tried to like uh, these people tried to break onto the property. And they showed how difficult it is and, like, how, like, weirdly secure it is at all times. Mm. But, I I mean, I just have heard that it's, like, that's the place. What is it? Is it, like, open a to the idea. club or something? Yeah. Like, what is the building for? So, it, well, it looked like... It's like a compound, right? Yeah. And it's got, like, a... There In the video I watched, there was, like, kind of... I don't know if it's completely surrounded by, like, a river but at least like the back part of it, there's like a some body of water and then there's like forest, but like you can't even get to the forest before the body of water without like someone immediately being on your ass. Like, I don't know, these two guys got arrested trying to do it, but yeah. And the, the, the claim is that there's sex that's happening there, right? All kind, like anything illicit, I guess, is what they were uh, saying. It's, it's the place for the politicians to go where they can get away with shit, I guess, is... 
So in Kathy's version, the Grove has room for nearly any fetish. There's a necrophilia room where girls' bodies are frozen in a cold bathtub and tranced deeply. So they are alive, but they're put into a trance and then they're made to feel cold. Their their physical bodies. There's a dark room where patrons uh, had sex with the girls while pornographic images of the girls played on screens, which is super meta. Uh, There are also rooms for bestiality and incest, rooms to use girls as dolls or as urinals, rooms for BDSM, and also group sex. In the conclusion of her description of the Bohemian Grove, which is perhaps the most visceral symbol of Project Monarch's power, Kathy O'Brien turns to something far more abstract and, she believes, much more dangerous. She's speaking about the New World Order. She says, and I'm quoting, From the owl's roost to necrophilia room, no memory of sexual abuse is as horrifying as the conversations overheard in the underground pertaining to implementing the New World Order. I learned that perpetrators believed that controlling the masses through propaganda mind manipulation did not guarantee that there would be a world left to dominate due to the environmental and overpopulation problems. The solution being debated was not pollution or population control, but mass genocide of selected undesirables. I mean, wow. Kathy participated in the implementation of what she called Global Education 2000, a New World Order component of the ROSE initiative. I'm just throwing these terms out there in the way that she does, and uh, they're difficult to search down in any meaningful way. She was sexually enslaved by Lamar Alexander, who enjoyed bringing his victim to the point of death through oral suffocation. Lamar Alexander, who served under George H.W. Bush as the Secretary of Education, right, the George H.W. Bush uh, years, worked to manipulate the minds of the masses to accept Education 2000 as the only means of education reform. Now, this, in my opinion, is the climax of Kathy's account, although it doesn't actually function that way. She goes on to participate in international black market deals and see then-President Bush present himself using a hologram as a reptile alien, which, Olivia, is a strange... There it is. is, So this is it. Uh, uh, Okay, so I'm going to get to... All right, so let me get to the... (laughs) I'm, like, beside myself with things I have to say. I can tell. Kathy O'Brien creates reptilians. I have to say that Hmm. because David Icke reads this book and subsequently runs with it in his reptilian theories, even though O'Brien makes clear that Bush wasn't a reptile. He just liked to be made to look like one. What? So in O'Brien's version, Bush would sit in this chair and they would use holograms to make him look like a reptile. To like, you know, because he he got off on that. Like he thought that was fun and he would like have people come talk to him as a reptile. Bush was a furry. I yeah, I guess he was a kind I a guess reptile a scaly. A scaly, a scaly furry. <gasps> Bush was a scaly. So she says. <laughs> but David Icke reads this. Really, like this is the beginning. David Icke reads this, and the reptilian theory that Olivia is so fond of just goes from here. He says, Oh no, Kathy's wrong. He's really a reptilian. Mm-hmm. And there you go. It's It goes from there. But this is it. This is ground zero for the reptilian idea. Anyway, but that's not the, that's not the point. That's a tangent. That was a good tangent. <laughs> I enjoyed it. The grand conspiracy uh, that she suggests that, you know, is before this moment with George H.W. Bush is relatively vague. 
There is mass mind manipulation, as Cooper points out, points to in his reproduction of Aquino's PSYOP plan, but this can only be effective after a mass genocide. Still, some sort of indoctrination of the nation's youth through a problem called Global Education 2000 is going forward regardless of when the genocide might take place. So all these things are components of this NWO thing, but it's hard to really wrap your mind around exactly what the government's trying to do. Is it because the trauma would incite the brain control to work better? Like how they were, like how Kathy was programmed, kind of. It's being scaled up, right? Yeah. Okay. So O'Brien's vague comments about the New World Order are also the point at which her caricature of the global elite reaches its peak. Their disregard for human life, which, so here's, again, where I'm going to be like, Kathy O'Brien is smarter than we're giving her credit for. Their disregard for human life, maybe not than I'm giving her credit for, but then you... <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, she inspired David Icke's. We're like, oh, come on, this is insane. But let's take a moment. Let's take a moment and see how there's some sanity in here. The most, the, the global elite's disregard for human life is a thing we've actually seen in the actions of drug companies like the Sackler family's Purdue Pharma, who have act- actively p- promoted the opioid epi- epidemic, or the blatant pollution of public waterways, which was done by DuPont Chemical and resulted in the deaths of, you know, just people living their lives. Or we could talk about the government's half-hearted response to major disasters like Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, or let's be honest, Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, Mm. or come on, the freaking COVID pandemic. Yeah. What are we talking about right now, friends? But money is more valuable than human life. Yep. This is the global elite's attitude. Like, who? Let me just take a second. Let me just, ooh, COVID for just a hot second here. <laughs> I'm getting wound up. But who stands to benefit here, right? Like, let the government write checks for unemployment. Let people stay home. Let's keep the poor. Let's keep the nursing homes. Let's keep, you know, the underprivileged, the minority safe. Who stands to lose if we don't get the economy going again? Whose freaking economy is it in the first place? It's the billionaires. It's the stock market, right? That bounces right back. And Wall Street's having a great freaking day. For who? Not me. Not you. I'm not having a great day. I just kept teaching at the college. My day actually didn't change. I'm fortunate in that way. But I'm not having a great day. I didn't need everyone to go back to the restaurants. I didn't need everyone to go back to the malls to keep doing my job. Who needed that to happen? The billionaires who own that crap, who own the landlords, who own the landlords, who own the properties, the hedge fund managers, like they're the ones that need the global economy back in action. And they don't really care if people are going to die. Yeah. And our president needs those people to be doing that so that he can have his money. But that's besides the point. Life seems cheap from the penthouses of the elite. And so O'Brien conjures a shadowy nightmare of genocide, mentioned only once in the whole text, but poignantly in the wake of her catalog of atrocities at Bohemian Grove. Like it comes right after that. The similarly vague Education 2000 initiative brings her tale of the government's corruption of the nation's youth from the unfamiliar and hidden halls of Project Monarch to the far more quotidian and banal halls of your local elementary school. The elite are not just corrupting some of the nation's youth, they're corrupting all of them. In her interview with Tracy Twyman, O'Brien clarified what she meant by mass manipulation or mind control, redefining it as a kind of social engineering. 
As a college professor at a state institution, I am all too aware of the games politicians play to manipulate the value and function of education in our society. They try and determine how history is taught, also science. They defund initiatives meant to educate underprivileged students. They starve colleges of necessary funding to keep education affordable and deny the public's right to a college education. I'm a humanist, right? And politicians are constantly telling America how pointless I am, that you don't need to understand the humanities. You don't need to study philosophy or ethics or religion so that you don't have your own freaking values, so that you can't make your own choice. You can just slavishly follow them. Boy, I'm on a rip I was about to say. Clap, 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 clap. Yes. This deserves real snaps. This is why I love love this woman, though. Like, yes, this is insane, and it's disturbing, and it makes us feel icky. But it, it pulls all these things to the surface. Education 2000, with its undefined parameters inside the confines of O'Brien's narrative, seems to stand as a cipher for all the games politicians play with our education system. In the Twyman interview, O'Brien highlighted the significance of what amounts to a liberal arts education, saying that, and I love, I love this, this is a quote, she says, asking questions is the key for them to start thinking out of the box, thinking beyond what they've been told, thinking beyond the little bits and pieces that they've been allowed to know. This is what she says of students, what, what children need to do. If they don't do this, then the conspiracy will get them. Her point is that people need to be taught how to think, not what to think. Trying to tell them what to think is like a hypnotic therapist giving memories to a subject. It's programming them. Transformation of America, this is the point at which I have to inform you, is only partially O'Brien's book, and I've actually been telling it out of order. It's an already bizarre book, and I admit that. A book that I love, but a bizarre one. O'Brien and Phillips make the still more bizarre choice to lead not with O'Brien's story, but with Phillips' story of helping to liberate O'Brien from Project Monarch and follow up with O'Brien's story of living as a captive of Project Monarch. Mark Phillips first crossed paths with O'Brien through Alex Houston when he entered a business partnership with the ventriloquist, who apparently was also involved in international business. Philip's first impression of Kathy was that she was, quote, young, beautiful, very dumb, and dressed like a prostitute. Oh, my God. Jesus. Alex Houston, it seems, had an idea for an electrical device, and Phillips formed a company with him and successfully solicited the interest of Chinese investors. The deal was brokered by a Korean businessman named Mr. Yoon between Phillips, Houston, and China's mining ministry. Phillips was making regular trips to China, and on one of these trips, his partner Houston did not go along. Because, as Phillips later found out, he was transporting O'Brien and her daughter Kelly to the Bohemian Grove. On this trip, a member of the Ministry of Defense took the opportunity of not having Houston around to show Phillips evidence that his business partner was involved in drugs, money laundering, child prostitution, and sexual slavery. So in other words, the Chinese are like, oh, your weird ventriloquist partner is not here. Let us fill you in on what he's been up to when you're not doing business with him. Uh, So Phillips at first refuses to believe any of this, thinking that Houston was too dumb to be involved in the intelligence service. But then the Chinese official showed him a photograph. This was a photograph of Houston, quote, smiling a demonic grin while apparently having anal sex with a small, very young, frightened black boy. Later, he was identified, says Phillips, as being a Haitian. Again, all our apologies to Alex Houston's family. He seems like a very nice man from what I could read in his obituary. Uh, Sorry, but this is what the book says. 
turns out Houston is part of, quoting, a huge invisible CIA slave trade going on worldwide. Phillips discovers that Houston's wife, Kathy, and their child, Kelly, are both slaves owned by the government. To get Kathy and Kelly away from Houston, Phillips is told to call her, says, say he's God, and use Bible passages to get her to leave. Like, specific Bible passages are, like, the code to get her out Wait. of there. So he's supposed to call her up and, like, he can, like, you know, program her to, like, walk out of the building so like a robot. Chinese told him how to do all this? How do they know all that? I mean, like, about the Bible passages and stuff, like, and, like the specificness, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, not, if it's not, I mean, maybe it's, I mean, it's probably not real anyway, but, like. I, I actually don't know for sure. I can't remember. It's been a while since I've actually read the book. There might be another person involved, but the Chinese get all this going, so. Oh, okay. <laughs> they are, they have some awareness. Uh, so Mark Phillips divorced. This is true now. A lot of this is now. Tr- so we're getting into like true stuff that is more believable anyway. Phillips divorces his wife and makes a clean break with his own son, uh, which is apparently a very painful separation uh, that he believed was in his son's best interest on account of he was getting involved with the CIA sex slave. Uh, Kathy divorces Houston uh, and they the, together, Kathy, Kelly and Mark all leave for Las Vegas, where her daughter Kelly Uh, briefly meets up with her biological father, Wayne Cox. But the stay in Vegas is short. Soon, they sail along with Phillip's three pet raccoons. Just wanted to toss that in. That's fun. They sail for Anchorage, Alaska. Um, So Kathy, Kelly, Mark, three raccoons on their way to Alaska. Do the raccoons have names? I don't know if the raccoons are going to do well in Alaska. Are there raccoons in Alaska? I don't know. Do they have names? Yeah, do they have names? That's an important question Let us too. Know. The raccoons? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't have them here, but it's possible. I hope they have. I'm sure names. they must have. Also, <laughs> so. she had the ability to divorce um the ventriloquist? It appears. Yeah, this is where the story gets funky from a believability standpoint to be honest um in part because of that that she suddenly is has some agency and can just break up with the cia yeah but they yeah, i didn't think about that they go to alaska if in theory to run away from the cia it's like the most remote place within the united states that they can think of to yeah. escape um so phillips believes the cia is tracking him uh which prompts his move to alaska despite the fact that he had no job prospects there he found work and started the project of deprogramming kathy and kelly so in alaska he begins this deprogramming so the reason i flipped the story is because phillips comes into kathy's story much later but weirdly in the book itself phillips tells his story first even though his story is of saving kathy and you don't know what happened to Kathy in the first place. So it's sort of an odd way. You know what I mean? The, yeah. the chronology's messed up in the book. So I fixed the chronology in the way I've told it. Yeah, so, it's much better the way you tell it. Thanks. <laughs> How does he uh, have so, the ability to um, help her? Uh, what did you call it? De- deprogram? Deprogram. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, let me. I'm going to quote him directly here on this, this process, Savannah. And this, this he told to Tracy Twyman. He said, you don't ask them any questions. It's not like most people would think. I had to know certain codes, keys, and triggers. I had to, and it was provided, a few of those, enough to get the information flow going inside of her own head. She had to write. She wasn't allowed to verbalize. I wasn't able to ask her any questions. Really, what it amounted to was I was no more than a bodyguard and a nurse and a housekeeper and a cook if you want to get right down to the nuts and bolts of it. So he's essentially keeping her alive, trying not to feed her any information, but 
using what he's calling these codes and triggers to get her to talk. And by talking, I, I assume she's sort of like unburdening herself and recalling the memories and piecing her personalities back together into one Why person. Why is he doing mm. this? Yeah. I think he loves her. When did he have time to fall in love with her? Between the time he met her looking like a prostitute and the time they left for Alaska. He said she looked like a dumb prostitute and now, okay. But then he realized she was sex slave programmed and she became this romantic heroine. Okay. A lingering concern uh, that I have had reading this book uh, was Kelly O'Brien's role in all of this. And, And I will say as a father, as a human being, but definitely as a father. While I can appreciate and even admire O'Brien's narrative, and I have been, right, throughout, it's incisive, it's a powerful caricature of real systemic problems in Western culture, I still can't help but worry about Kelly. I can only really appreciate O'Brien's story when I choose to understand it as an intentional or unintentional exaggeration. Kelly, though, was a real person caught up in this exaggeration. So was she abused like Kathy? Certainly patterns of abuse can work their way through bloodlines, as we all know, from generation to generation. Perhaps Kathy was drawn to men who abused her daughter, the way she claims her father abused her. Kathy explains that Kelly was born into MKUltra, created as a hybrid of her father's mercenary paramilitary skills and her mother's message-carrying and sexual skills. She was exposed to a much more sophisticated level of mind control than Kathy had been, and her conditioning was based on what Kathy calls a harmonics high tech level, whereas Kathy's had been on a sexual abuse and trauma level. Kathy seems to believe that Kelly's harmonic conditioning was a more sophisticated form of mind control and that the abuse-based was better than the abuse-based programming she received. However, Kelly ended up in juvenile detention, and the lawyers involved invoked the National Security Act seemingly to cover up her involvement in the CIA's secret program. Weird. Kathy O'Brien, and this is all from O'Brien herself. She's the one telling the story this way. O'Brien says that when Kelly tried to remember her past, it triggered a kind of programming that caused her breathing to shut down, mimicking an asthma attack. Unlike Kathy, who seemed to have been healed through Mark Phillips' deprogramming, Kelly's deeper program had kept her brain compartmentalized, which made it difficult for her to find herself. She struggled to hold down a job or make any meaningful contributions to society, O'Brien reports about Kelly. So it seems to me that Kelly is not in a good way, or at least that she wasn't in the late zeros, the late aughts, so like 2009, when Twyman interviewed O'Brien and asked her about her daughter. So that's the last sort of official report we have on that question. This may be because of the abuse she suffered, at whose hands it's really impossible for us to tell, um, given the extreme expressionist distortions in O'Brien's story, but I can't help but wonder if O'Brien's commitment to her exaggerated version of events and involvement with national politicians and musicians... Um, that many commentators find outlandish caused her daughter any issues, particularly if she had also attempted to recover from some form of abuse. So in other words, I, I worry a little bit if just being in the environment of a person telling these stories, a person who believes these stories, like we have to bear that in mind. While I'm treating them as this cultural critique, O'Brien tells them as something that actually happened. And I, a large part of me believes that she believes in these stories. So we have to imagine being this person's daughter. And it's not like just being the daughter of a person who believes she's a sex slave. It's a daughter, the daughter of a person who not only believes she's a sex slave, but believes you were a sex slave. So it's funky, right? It's, it's, not, it's, it's uncomfortable. It's a very uncomfortable situation. Do you know for sure that Kelly was a person that was alive? That she, like, that 
that Kathy had a daughter? Tracy Twyman, uh, th- this interviewer, does ask about Kelly. And when I went to Kathy O'Brien's website, she talks about Kelly and she says that people should leave Kelly alone and um, that, that, you know, Kelly doesn't want to be involved in this and, and she needs her space. So she seems pretty real. That that seems not real to me, though. Her, well, I mean, the, the, tr- the, the mother-daughter relationship, it's, it's certainly bizarre. Well, I just, you know, if... If I was lying about having a daughter and all this shit to add to my credibility, I would also say, hey, leave her alone. Like, oh my, I I don't know. Maybe I'm just like shedding too much doubt, but I guess I just feel like if Kelly was a person, unless she was truly like so traumatically screwed over, I don't see why she wouldn't either be saying, yes, my mom is telling the truth or no, my mom's batshit crazy. Well, I don't think it's unusual if, when parents gain attention, particularly this kind of attention, which isn't necessarily positive for a child to say, I don't want any part of what mom does. I guess, but if her mom is throwing her into that mix of information, like, I'm just thinking if, like... Might be all the more reason not to want anything to do with it. I don't it. know, because if people are bothering Kelly because of this, do you know what I'm saying? It's my impression. I feel like she exists. She's an odd inclusion otherwise. I think the story's cleaner without her, to be honest. It makes me feel better without her. I think it adds to the idea of a next generation. Like, I think it adds to her credibility, to be honest, if she had a daughter. Does Kelly exist? I don't know. Well, this will be a question we have to linger with. (laughs) Is there a Kelly? If there is, this is dark. So that's all I wanted to point out. Okay, so let's get to Rob's take here. It turns out I'm pretty much on board with Kathy's story, or at least the broad themes and ideas underlying what I've read, uh, not literally, but as a caricature of power, a reading that, in my opinion, transforms the narrative that's often dismissed by other conspiracy theorists into a fairly brilliant critique, which I've allowed it to be in this episode. So yet again, we're not in step with the mainstream conspiracy theorists. (laughs) They don't like Kathy's story. I do like Kathy's story. Uh, but they don't have much to contribute in terms of critique. Critique O'Brien is just too much for them, so they just look past her. Like, did you see what I mean? Like, it's just they can't take it. The Ronald Reagan, uh, Uncle Ronnie's bedtime stories, Dick Cheney hunting people, freaking Jimmy Buffett. Like, they just they're just like, it's I. This is too much for me, sister. I gotta get out of here. Which might be misogynist. I, I mean, but that happens every single day. I mean, there are women that step forward that say that they had sex with so-and-so politician unwillingly, and it just goes by. Nothing happens. Uh, yeah, and Right. Women not being believed about sexual things, yeah. not uncommon. Yeah. So perhaps the, the, uh, the conspiracy theorists of the world should be more delicate in their approach to this, but they haven't been. We have been, I hope. Um, all right, so... That doesn't mean that no one has invested in countering O'Brien or attacking her. Uh, So most of the conspiracy theorists are just like, this is too much. We're not even going to address this. However, the greatest vitriol for O'Brien's story actually comes from the very people whose careers, or at least books, she made possible. I'm speaking about other survivors of Project Monarch and its subsidiary programs, which we brought up at the beginning. Remember I mentioned Bob Hope? Uh, Bryce Taylor also known as Sue Ford, wrote the second most popular book in the genre. This book was called Thanks for the Memories, and it detailed her enslavement by Bob Hope and Henry Kissinger. For listeners who don't spend their spare time navigating around YouTube looking for mid-20th century comedians, uh, the title of Taylor's book refers to a song closely identified with Bob Hope, who sang it as part of his routine. 
Thanks for the memories. Given the similarities between her story and O'Brien's, Taylor managed to actually meet O'Brien and Phillips. Phillips offered to deprogram her, and she accepted. But in the course of this deprogramming, Phillips concluded that Taylor had never been mind-controlled in the first place. O'Brien thought Taylor uh, could be pleased, would be pleased, that she'd be thrilled, since that meant her children had not been abused. Hooray! But Taylor shot back, so apparently part of Taylor's story is also that her children are abused by, you know, in the same fashion that Kelly is. But Taylor shot back that Phillips was an agent for the New World Order. And Phillips was just, like, (laughs) trying to cover up the fact that she'd been a CIA sex slave. Um, He falsely identified her story as a false memory in an effort to contain the truth. So this is a like internal fight, right? I always say that the people who are closest together, like Catholics are most often likely to fight with other Catholics about Catholic theology, but they're unlikely to fight with Mormons because they're just so far. They're not even the same ballpark. The same situation with these two. They're arguing over who has the legitimate story about CIA sex slaving. Um, So this led Taylor to cut closer to the bone and question O'Brien's story from a conspiracy angle. Taylor pointed out the most baffling aspect of O'Brien's and Phillips' story, that the vast elaborate plot they'd exposed suggested a remarkably powerful international intelligence organization that not only let them escape, but allowed them to publish their story and failed to assassinate them, even though, as Taylor points out, they frequently stayed in public hotels. Huh. Yeah. That's a good point. Phillips shot back that Taylor was only role-playing a mind-control victim. O'Brien called her a victim of false memories implanted by her therapist. But couldn't you argue that Phillips could have just done the same thing? I think if he did, he did it unintentionally, reading just from my reading of him. Um, but I think it can be done unintentionally for sure. With all these codes and triggers that he mentions, like we don't know what those are. I so. just mean like, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. The argument shows up the role imagination has very likely played in the construction of both narratives, as Olivia is saying, and helps us see them for what they are, not literal but figurative reflections of the sometimes nefarious extravagances of power. Going back to the scholar I started with, Golias, um, he calls the escaped sex slave narratives like O'Brien's and Taylor's conspiracy porn uh, for their depiction of of what he calls transgressive sexuality, and we can't disagree that it's certainly transgressive sexuality. Um, However, in my opinion, that's both a little prudish and pretty wildly understated. Transgressive sexuality doesn't even begin to touch on what O'Brien says happened to her and her daughter. Transgressive sexuality is, I don't don't even know, like, like bringing a banana to bed. But this is, you know, way beyond that. I believe, as I've said in my reading of these stories today, that this transgressive sexual excess is what gives the sex slave narrative its meaning. It's the -the over-the-top, brutal, disturbing nature of the story that helps the reader to realize the true darkness hiding in plain sight in the halls of power. The image of the gun-toting Dick Cheney hunting a naked girl through the forests of Wyoming for sport may not be real, but it suggests a deeper reality that's rarely ever spoken of with as much seriousness as O'Brien gives it, despite the bizarreness of the claim. Cheney's gun is not the end of a joke or the start of a political comment. It's the physicalization of a real and profound cruelty. Oh, man. That's a lot to digest. There's a lot to take in. Yeah, I'm sorry. (laughs) I didn't want to cut you off during your not rant earlier, but your like speech earlier about COVID-19, but a lot of it kind of reminded me of what's also happening with um, 
the Black Lives Matter movement, um, especially with how the protesters are being treated. It's just like no, the higher ups do not care. Like it, I, it's kind of, I guess my brain is kind of fried right now. So it's harder to put in the words what I'm thinking, but like people are being gassed, people are being hurt. I mean, and still, there are still black people being killed. Apparently the other day there was somebody else who died with uh, a cop like sitting on his knee and it's just like, nobody gives a shit. Yeah. Politicians Um, are like taking photos kneeling, but it's like, can you not kneel? Because you could actually change something. I mean, yeah, this is the veneer, right? That O'Brien gets us underneath with this disturbing and, you know, extreme imagery. She penetrates the veneer of the politician kneeling to see that true cruelty and disregard underneath of this, you know, performance. Yeah. And then like the performance of Trump clearing out all those protesters with gas and rubber bullets so he can go take that really, really awkward picture with the Bible. Yeah. Like for not even... Like, he was there for probably, like, five minutes. Like, what the fuck is going on? I don't... Uh, they're so... Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's a I, weird world. I brought it up. <laughs> but, you know, 1995, this book comes out, and I think it still does show us some... Uh, really speak a lot of truth about the nature of power. It's really gross. Well, I just can't stop thinking about Dick Cheney. Can't stop thinking about that time, the t- multiple times that I shook his hand. You know Dick Cheney? Well, I mean, not, like, personally. So, but you've met Dick Cheney more than once. Yeah, right. And I was a child, so <laughs> I'm, like, especially kind of a little bit, like, I can't stop thinking about it. <laughs> you escaped. It. Well, because uh, oh they God. always had the VP Christmas party for, like, all the Secret Service officers. So we, like, went when my dad was still stationed at, like, a particular, I think you had to be stationed, like, at the White House or something. And it was like a massive Christmas party. And I just remember going up and shaking Dick Cheney's hand and having to talk to him and his wife for a while. And then them being like, go play with our dogs. And also here are stuffed animal replicas of our dogs. Wow. Yeah. That wow. Is... I also played with Bush's dogs That's... a couple of times. Wow. Like what... in the yard, though. Like on the lawn, like fenced in with Secret Service people staring at me. It was very weird. <laughs> Did you see any signs of bestiality? No, the dogs were chilling. Okay. They yeah. didn't seem traumatized or anything. <laughs> no, they were playing. Yeah. I mean, it was a little bit weird because, you know, they were just being stared at by like 15 people while we played, but it was fine. Weird and wild stuff. Yeah. All right, let's uh, get to our order of confessors. We'll gong on into that. Everyone's learning so much about my childhood today. I'm just realizing. (laughs) (laughs) It's very weird. Uh, Moment of exposition. Okay. (laughs) I know my heart, so I speak it. That's a person who made a a review here. Uh, They say we're a breath. That's a name. Holy shit. Can we just like marinate on that for a second? We can marinate. Wow. I know uh, my heart, so I speak it. (laughs) <laughs> that we are a breath of fresh air in an oversaturated market of crooning dust bags. Oh my god, they get it. Yeah. Cleaning dust bags? Crooning. They might be pruning oh. as well, I don't know. Maybe they're oh. in the bath. Probably a little bit. Shouldn't be pruning while you're podcasting. Mm. Uh, I do want to mention Nikki T, uh, who's, who's one of s- several folks uh, who have recommended us to a friend. So whenever your Aww, friends yay. post, hey, what podcast should I listen to? Uh, Nikki T is one of those people who's who jumped in for us and said, oh, Occult Confessions. This is what we're talking about, spreading the word. 
Uh, So when you get that chance, go ahead and let people know that you're having to listen to the old uh, confessors here. Well, the alchemical actors. You are the confessors. We're grateful. And uh, Bill P., I want to give a shout-out to Bill P. We shared a nice exchange on the Facebook group about John D. and James Bond. So if you want to to check that out, go have a look. 007 and the penis reference there. Uh, Yeah, think about it. It's two zeros and a seven. It's a testicle. Yeah, I I saw it. There you go. So, uh, (laughs) well, not not everyone Hmm. did. All right. Every middle school boy does. Olivia, bring us on home. I hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting of the secret order of alchemical actors till such a time as we get together and do it again. There were, for very good reason, no voices on today's episode, uh, but I have been joined by Savannah Verrett, the sister of the 84th degree. Uh, So long, everyone. Good luck processing what you just listened to. (laughs) Yes. Honestly. If we can help at all, please let us know. Uh, Olivia Letterall, Grandmaster of the Order. Oh, bye, guys. And bye. me, my name is Rob C. Thompson. I am your supreme hierophant, and uh, I both, uh, I'm saying you're welcome, and I apologize for what has just happened to all of you. Yeah. Uh, so here we are. We are at the end of our conspiracy series, so it's time to announce where we're going next. Um, so well, what I've done for the remainder of the year is we've got another long series like this, and I've done two. Sh- well, I'm working on two short serieses. So we're going to do a short series next, which is just four episodes, and this is going to be based around the Emerald Tablet. Um, so we're going to do a short series about alchemy. Uh, This is going to include episodes on the Emerald Tablet, also German alchemists and John Dee. Speaking of John Dee. And then we're going to do a series on evil spirits. So things to look forward to. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for staying with us through uh, this very disturbing episode. And uh, I hope that you did not stay with us if if any of that would have traumatized you or that you turned us off if you started to feel traumatized and you've skipped (laughs) to the end just to hear me saying goodbye. Go reward yourself with like an ice cream or something. Right, yeah, you deserve it. it. Yeah, go do something good for yourself now that you've heard all that. Uh, (laughs) So we look forward to speaking with you again here on Occult Confessions.